Hey, if you don't know Andrew Rosen from Parkour, you're missing out on one of our generation's greatest minds thinking through the marketing needs and how that strategy plays out from one big corporation to the other. He asked the same questions we ask, what's going on here? What's really missing and what are they actually telling us? So this week on Halloween Breaks, we we invite Andrew into this conversation and we're asking some of the big questions about Disney's Q3 earnings, how this talent economy is really working and really like, what are these numbers mean for our current deals and future deals? So we welcome Andrew Rosen on episode 51, Hollywood Breaks. You know, my curiosity of how you work is just like, where does this come from, man? Are you, <laughs> you're like the encyclopedia of, of industry business thoughts or something like that. You know, it's so crazy what the kind of ideas you can get in and out of. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, appreciate that. It's a huge compliment. I, I, for me, I, 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 the, I, my basic approach is, it's funny, it, like, I'm always, well, if you really want to, if you, the, the simplest way to distill what I focus on are disconnects. Like, I really like, okay. And, and, and what, I, what I mean by disconnects is let me follow the logic of what somebody's saying. And if there's something that doesn't sit right, right, it's intuitive. It's like listening to somebody speak and, you know, and, and, and there's just kind of a gap in what they're saying. You say, all right, why doesn't that add up? Right. And, and, you know, it's trust, but verify in some ways really is as simple as that, but it, it's more fun to do the disconnects because then you can kind of, the, the place I next go to is, well, let me tack it from different angles. And so in my head, there's sort of four angles. I always think about um, the easiest ones to think of are just like uh, uh, marketplace, right? What's the supply and demand lens or how do we understand it? Uh, and, and, and then sort of the self-interest of the, of the person speaking. And then the second is legal just because I have a background in law. Is there anything I understand about the law that somebody doesn't understand? Um, and the two other ones, which are fun, uh, one is just ethical, right? Like, like, is there anything untoward, unethical, or, you know, are they fudging something? And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad or good but in any kind of like Manichaean good or bad sense, but much more of a, what's the, you know, there's a reason why they're doing this and some oftentimes it's self-interest, but does self-interest actually explain the thing that's taking place. And then the last one, which is the really fun one in digital and uh, is, is just what's the, what's the technological architecture around this problem, right? Like, so a lot of what I write about, even the thing that's going to go out after our, our call today is uh, our, our talk today is, is um, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about Disney's, earnings call, we'll come back to this, um, is that they really basically said, you know, we're all in on bundles now. Like we're not, and, and what they didn't say, but if you look at the numbers is that, that I don't know if Disney plus would have grown in the U S without ESPN plus and Hulu, that basically like ESPN plus and Hulu. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Grew the same. And there's data from the information that said that, you know, that Disney, Disney's growth had flattened out in North America. And so you sort of, when you think about the technical architecture, you think, okay, well, Disney plus wouldn't grow. That means number one, the bundle is the best solution. But then number two, something that I remember from Robert Iger saying to the wall street journal, which was we're not putting personalization in Disney plus because people want to see Mickey mouse, just want to see other Mickey mouse videos. They don't want to see like Pixar. And th that was his decision. But I, I do. What's interesting is that, Disney's entire D2C suite is bigger than Netflix in a large part because of a hyper-personalized solution, which is Hulu. And so you just start, so, so that's really the way that I think. It's really, you know, that technological, legal market. It's funny you say that disconnects. One, what I know you mean is 
BS. Like you realize when you're calling BS <laughs> on people. <clears throat> but from as a reader of yours, I feel like you you drop the dots and then I get to like see the same thing you're thinking and connect them and, and draw certain conclusions to them. And you're totally right. What I what I didn't hear you say in the top four is is monetary. Like then you ask the question, like, who's making the money from this thing? Because well, I mean, that, that, I mean, that is the marketplace lens. Yeah, I mean, that is that is the marketplace. Lens. Yeah, but there is, um, yeah, well, I mean, just as you were saying with the, with the Disney uh, Plus conversation of like, once you, you know, marketplace being competitive and understanding supply, demand, and growth, but sometimes there's just basic incentives of like, how much money can this person make? And uh, the rich seem to get being getting richer, and the poor seem to be getting poorer. So there's even these stranger motivations, and maybe it blends through the ethical lens as well. Some of the financial stuff, um, but yeah, the, the, I'll jump right into it today because um, the Q3 conversation or Q2 conversation with Disney is uh, was an interesting one. I think Keith was picking up on some of those same. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna use the word disconnects from now on, Keith. I'm not gonna use. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? But there's questions that we had kind of coming in and out of that. Keith, what was the big takeaway that you you were talking about before the show? Well, I, I would agree with Andrew that um, Bob the second kind of let the cat out of the bag. Uh, um, I think not necessarily on purpose, but he basically let it out that they're spending a bulk of their marketing budget on selling the bundle, which basically means that's where a bulk of their money is now coming from and growth most likely. I think Andrew is absolutely right. I think once the sort of shine of watching Frozen 50 times over with your kids kind of wears off, you need something else. Like the adults need something else. And, you know, listen, Marvel and has done a great job of sort of expanding the universe in that regard, especially with their what if launching this couple days ago, I believe, and it seems to be getting a good reaction. But at the same time, you know, when you're talking about a global audience, there's got to be more appeal. You have to have more. And Hulu has that adult-sized appeal. And, you know, ESPN Plus has got the sports. So I think that was one thing. Another thing that stuck out for me that we talked a little bit about pre-conversation, sort of as a marketer, you know, the idea that they're still enjoying the flexibility of sort of taking a movie and then potentially shifting it onto Disney Plus and doing a day-and-date strategy which is a marketer, if you do that like at a last minute as a, as a nightmare because it's like a messaging quagmire in terms of where you're going to tell your audience to see the picture. And, you know, it's interesting to me that they still seem to want to play this game where they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll put it here, maybe we'll put it there. And my understanding of what Kareem Daniels' group was supposed to do, and clearly I'm not necessarily in the, always in the right when it comes to this, but was that that was his role, was to determine where the best place to put the product to make the maximize the revenue for Disney. And now they're still playing this game of like, well, we don't really know. We'll see how it goes. Um, so I think those are sort of some of the things that I thought came out of the, the the earnings call, which I thought was very interesting. Keith, maybe the only reason we haven't heard Cream's name is that he's not a not needed as a scapegoat yet for something else, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did bring him out. To be fair, they brought him out for the Black Widow numbers when they first revealed well, the, of course, the, the there you go. access right. numbers. They brought him, they rolled him out for that, and then he kind of went back, and I haven't heard from him since. But we like Disney just loves to control the conversation, right? Like it's always yes. going to be some kind of conversation play. Always. And yes. and Andrew, your um, one of your more recent articles about this um, creator economy and the streamer, you know, agenda really um, 
I think we're seeing that played out in these Q3 earnings. And really, as Keith was alluding to, even the the Black Widow, um, you know, priority of like talent over just making cash or making the Disney Plus, you know, stream viable, important, or you know, keep making money, whatever we want to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I want to just really quickly build off something Keith said because I think I, I was totally fascinated by the same thing, which was you know, that that he said, "Hey, we're testing." You know, we're like it was something I and this is I, on Fridays I do my mic drop where I got a prediction right, and just you know I said back in February that I thought their regional strategy was actually like we're going to A B C D test these four different models and see what we learn and see whether it's better to take it back to North America or you know, and and he literally said, Chapik said. Explicitly, we are running tests in different regions for learnings. We're figuring it out. But then to build off of Keith's point, I was totally fascinated by the Shang-Chi, right? That 45 days yeah. after for, they're yeah. going to go direct. And he's like, it's just a test. We don't know. It's just a test. We're just and, getting and, more and, data. And, more data. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then you think about every other legacy media call where it's like, our streaming service is doing so great. Unbelievable growth. Like, we are so happy with what's coming. You won't believe the content that's coming. And, you know. And even Peacock is spinning the fact that that they still like 30 million people still haven't registered as actually monthly active users, but you know they they'll count 54 million signups. Like, and and Disney, the second market leader, is you know they're doing something similar to what Netflix says, which is like we're going to figure this out. We know we we have to test it, and and it's and it is really anathema to what you're used to hearing from legacy media companies, which is like everything's great, everything's amazing, and our tech is the best. This was. We still don't know what we have. We're still figuring it out. We still don't know what's the best model. We're still in the first inning. I, I was. I thought that was the most fascinating thing to hear him say. But you guys don't think that that's just spin so that they have an excuse to screw people over? Like, well, we didn't know we were going to screw over Scarlett <laughs> Johansson. We were just testing. Oh, well, sure, we want this Marvel movie to be 45 days. We're just testing. And it should be like just an excuse where they actually are navigating reality and putting actual decisions in place. Well, I think they actually did admit that they, they, I mean, they're basically like, yeah, we, you know, we made a decision. We could distribute it and we, we thought we could make them the best yeah. money. The, the thing that was so interesting about the Scarlett Johansson is that the agent said, look, you, you know, it's fool me once, shame on, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. That lawsuit is you, you try to fool me twice. I'm going to make this very expensive for you now. And I think that, that to me, like the agent was doing, so coming back to the point about marketplace self-interest, like the agent was doing exactly what he's hired to do, which is. I, you know, you take, you decided without me to, re- to distribute on a channel that you own and you come back to me and you tell me how much money you have. Well, I don't know how you, I can't independently verify how much money you made. And secondly, I don't know why my client should only get like 10% of that. I mean, there's, there was, there were very reasonable points made in that lawsuit that were less about, you know, as much as what, what happened went down was problematic that, you know, it, the place the agent's head goes and even the lawyer's head goes, oh, so you do this three more times, like we've lost leverage with you. Like you can just come to us and say, here's money, take it, have a nice day. At a time where the economics have fundamentally changed, where we're going to pay you up front anyway, so here's an estimate of what we think it's going to do. It, it's a very, I get very, cl- it's very clear to me through that lens why that lawsuit took place. Yeah, that's good insight. Oh, I think I think that's that's a great point. It's sort of like a point that I made a couple of weeks ago about, listen, it's Brian Lord, it's CAA, it's a Disney company. It's not like this is going to end their relationship forever. <laughs> They're going to work together again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember you making that point. Because Brian Lord reps some of the bigger agents. Disney's got a huge pile of cash to make content. But to your point, it's a lot about leverage. It's like, listen, 
you're not going to be able to pull this over our eyes with all our clients. Like we got to set a boundary here of where we're going to tolerate this sort of mysterious, like, oh, this is how much it made. Okay, see you later. Well, how do we know that's legit? Like, you know, let's see the numbers. And I think a lot of this is like, okay, I want to see the numbers. I want to see the data so that now we know, like, you're not going to be able to pull a fast one on us moving forward. We're going to have to come to some sort of agreement. And that's why the next Marvel movie is very interesting. They're saying like, oh, we have exhibitor deals that, you know, guarantee a 45-day window. And it's like, well, when was that deal made? It's like (laughs) all these things that just sort of pop up and like, wait, what? When did that happen? So it's sort of like there's a lot of things that are starting to pop out of, as you said, the economics are changing. And I I think we're seeing a lot of that play out. Yeah, is this going to get bigger? Like, are we going to see enough critical mass of people asking these questions and demanding some sort of information that the that the numbers will eventually come out of Disney or there'll be a third party, um, I don't know, measuring stick to determine it where the money was made and what the benefits are. Because for a, a platform like Disney Plus with subscribers, what happens there if if I get, you know, two million subscribers subscribing to the channel that don't leave for three years, but they showed up because I, you know, I'm the the premier, the prime actor in Free Guy. Does Ryan Reynolds get like a piece of everyone's uh, um, subscription for th- two years? Like, you know, that's that's the kind of screen nature of of what this platform means. No, you you hit it. I mean, and 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 the thing that Jason Blum and I wrote about it this week that, that Jason Blum was interviewed and and by Kim Masters. I think this, by the way, this is of must listen podcast interviews. Kim Masters' interview of Jason Blum on KCRW, uh, the business last week is. You know, of, of things anybody should listen to understand what's going on in this industry in terms of the, the dynamics. It's, that's it, because he is he's very forthright with her. She's very good at asking questions. It's a very good conversation. But one of the things he says is, you know, he's been a really fascinating interview over the years because he's basically like these economics don't make any sense to me. Like, I, you know, there's, I don't know what the win win is. And then he says, but I'm a total hypocrite because I just took 400 million to make three, you know, the, the trilogy of the exorcist <laughs> yeah. to do this. So like, I understand that when I make this point, I am a hypocrite, but I just don't understand what it means for them to pay me and my talent up front as if these are three enormous hits. And, and, and that comes back to your point, Tim, which is, I don't know how you account for this. They assume that they, you know, if they, if that, that they think that there's some sort of math that they can do on their back end. Uh, that tells them how how the movie's going to do with their audience and best case worst case scenario. So it's, it's highly quantified. It's it sounds like it's highly sophisticated, and they feel comfortable giving that much money up front. And, and but you know what they're basically giving money to say is exactly your point about Ryan Reynolds, which is I don't want you to come back to me in three years and ask why you know if Free Guy all of a sudden is spiking, uh, you know, like the Nielsen ratings, why we're not paying Ryan Reynolds? Like he got paid a lot of money that that accounted for some probability of this. And that's what the money reflects. Well, you're saying some of what my concern is, is that, you know, right now these streamers are paying a high price, but what they're really buying is a commodity contract and saying, I'll pay you up front. I don't owe you any back end. And sure, they're investing a lot of money into it now, but as time goes on, there'll be a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. And before you know it, there won't need to be a sag because everyone's just selling the commodity up front and there is no back end, there's no influencer play and the platforms win. Whatever they want to do with whoever they want to do with, that's the game. And I, I pick on Netflix a lot because I feel like Netflix 
does not do a good job in making content. They already are commoditizing so much of this talent and so much of this work into just like a bucket of money that everyone gets. And we'll just keep, we'll print a, a movie a week or whatever their their format is right now. I mean, I'm sure Donna Langley was not thrilled by Jason Blum's comment, <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, having sort of been in some of those conversations, I kind of get where she was coming from. She's like, okay, horror, it's cheap to produce. Um, there's always an upside and it's Jason Blum. You know, he's going to deliver scares that are worthwhile. Um, so I kind of see why she dropped the money, but at the same time, it's like, but it's the exorcist, which hasn't made a movie in years. And you know, it, it, it's, but at the same time, it's a known quantity quantity. So she's, think, I think she's hedging her bet saying I get three really great ones. And if it doesn't do great theatrical can dump it on Peacock. So it's kind of a win-win for me. So I think that's the other thing. But I also agree with you. I think Netflix has really sort of started this whole ballgame because they were the ones that started paying up front. They're like, here, I'll give you a bucket of cash. You just don't come back to me looking for back end. And that sort of started the whole conversation. That started it all. We're like, okay, I get all this money and then I just have to trust whatever Netflix tells me whether or not a movie is a success or not. And they just kind of went along with it. And for a while it worked. And now... With Disney, some of the bigger theatrical distributors getting involved, where you know that was still an option, was like, oh, I can go make a movie with Netflix, make my 30, 40 million, whatever, but then I can go work work for Columbia Pictures and I still get my back end. But now it's all starting to shift, where now the, the big studios are saying, well, you know, we're gonna do day and day. So we're gonna release both in theatrical and our streamer, and we're not really gonna tell you because oh, that's what Netflix was doing. So now it's sort of like it's sort of coming, the chickens are coming home to roost a little bit, which is, again, always interesting in this whole migmash of uh, <laughs> the entertainment. <laughs> so, Andrew, I, I kind of put you in the category of a futurist. Um, as you said at the beginning, you know, your mic drop in, from February, which is impressive. I don't think Keith called it till May or whatever. But to be thinking, <laughs> like, you beat us by a few months on some of these predictions. Um, you know, what, where does this go? What does this creator economy that Hollywood once was, how does that shift? Well, so, I mean, so the creator economy is a really interesting point. It's something I wrote about last week, uh, which is, I, I, you know, I think that it's something Matthew Bologna wrote about in his newsletter, which is, you know, that, that Hello Sunshine deal is really fascinating because it's, because people are saying, well, what do you mean $900 million for that? And what I realized what they were missing, and, and this is something Baloney reported on that I thought was actually really valuable that you didn't see anywhere else, is she, that, that Reese Witherspoon built the 101, right? The basics of creator economy business models, meaning that she she was leveraging D2C technology to, to take Reese Witherspoon to build personal relationships with with fans and, and with, with people who wanted to engage with the brand. I've heard people compare it to Oprah. I think that's a reasonable... Uh, comparison of her book club and then also she has her own clothing line and, and so there's there's the 101 of you know it's the threat that's looming in, in what you're just in the way you're describing the the future of the of the talent relationship with hollywood and streaming is that at some point you're right it becomes a commodity and so commodity becomes less and less valuable less valuable less it is not only you're not getting not only you're not getting the back end but now you start getting less money up front so how do you monetize your talent? How do you monetize your relationship with the audience? And I think it's something that's a that's just been fascinating. It, it's one of the things that I 
kind of wish I'd, I'd paid a little bit more attention to in some ways, but in other ways, like when I, when I paid attention to it, it's been, you, you sort of get, you understand the significance of the moves that some of this talent makes, right? So, so Reese Witherspoon's point is I'm not going to make as much money from streaming. So I'm going to bet on podcasts and audio. And I don't know how much she's going to make, right? I, I, I know that, that there's that, that if she could come up with a concept with different management that Spotify wants to invest in that she could do very well. She's just being an influencer, right? I mean, she's yeah. quasi a Kardashian at this point in, in, her, in her business model. Yeah. That's right. And just figuring out what it means to have a direct, I mean, just having literally like, what does it mean for people who love you to be a click away? And how do you make their lives better by putting stuff that they love a click away? And you know, that's, that's a weird thing. That's a very risky thing for a list Hollywood talent to do. And they really try not to do it. I mean, the, the people, the vanguards before her were Will Smith and JLo who decided to say, all right, if we're going to do this YouTube thing, like we have to be authentic. Right. And so, and then if we're going to do Will Smith also, like if we're going to do this Facebook, Facebook watch thing, then we as a family are just going to overshare on front on a red table and get millions of people watching. And, and, and they embraced authenticity and, and, but at the same time, Reese Witherspoon's going much more creator economy route, which is now there are multiple platforms by which I can monetize my audience. So there's multiple ways that I can, monetize the audience, what's the optimal way for me to do that at scale? And, and I think the hypothesis that Kevin Mayer has, which is and also he's doing with Tom, Tom Staggs, but you know, Kevin Mayer's hypothesis when he went to TikTok was very similar. He's like, how do I turn gaming and music and mobile and all these other things around video so that there's, how do I figure out how the pieces come together in a way that gets really exciting? And I think that's the path that he's going to go down. Um, but, and so, so just to sort of sum up the point, which is, how do you build that relationship? How do you do that as Hollywood talent? You know, the, 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 the market example that I, I described, which I think everybody's, I think, assuming is that, you know, some Facebook gaming influencer, Karina Kopf, who has a few million followers on Instagram, um, started an OnlyFans and made $4.2 million in just over a month. And that, that's good returns, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. If you're wondering. It's pretty good yeah. ROI right there. <laughs> <laughs> For a login. <laughs> yeah. But you're not going to see Reese Witherspoon on OnlyFans. Or maybe you will at some point, right? But 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 the point is that it's a really interesting question for Hollywood talent about like you know, the only battles that Reese Witherspoon picked were streaming production, audio, e-commerce, and um uh you know, book club. And and I think that like she picked her battles and that got her 900 million because she's an A-list talent. But I think that you're, it's, it's, it's an interesting model to think about just because again, talking about laying the dots down, you know, what you see are the dots that she did. And then you also see the dots that she actively did not do. And the tension that you have for talent like hers is, well, what does it mean when, if you do connect the dots to OnlyFans and you can make 4.2 million because you have four times the, the, the scale of audience that this Facebook gaming influencer has, like, why wouldn't you do it? There's a lot of money to me. Yeah. I must feel like Andrew, you're hitting on what, one of the things that drives Keith crazy, right? So he, here's the scenario. We, <laughs> um, so here's the scenario. actors, as we're talking about actors and actresses um, are celebrities. They're known, they're known commodity and they really just get paid to do their, the job they're doing. If they're in a film or making a commercial, they're, their notoriety is what drives people into the audience. So traditional film marketing says, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to 
release some marketing with your with your image on it and we're going to make you do these stupid press conference press junket things and we're going to you know use your clips on entertainment tonight and we're going to use your like in the image um it feels like with the streamer world we don't do those promos i mean they basically just release it on netflix and it's at the top of the screen and you press the button you go so some of that traditional marketing marketing goes away and the actor becomes a commodity in that space but their celebrity is not a commodity. They can leverage it somewhere else. So now we have this influencer marketplace and they say, well, fine, if you're not going to use it to sell your consumer goods and you're not going to pay me like you used to, I'm going to pivot and sell tequila and books and, and cell phone plans Wireless. and whatever. Yeah, whatever the stuff <laughs> yeah. is. And these actors and actresses are doing that. Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. And Keith Rock. used to say, like, why aren't these, yeah, why aren't these studios giving people cell phones and letting them do their own back behind the scenes work? Like why, what's happening in the, in the studio marketing that they've let go of some of the greatest assets that they've had. And well, but luckily for the, for the talent that you're picking up, Andrew is, well, they're making the money somewhere else and they're not going to be foolish and just, you know, give it away or, or not, not leverage what they have. The, the Ryan Reynolds example is really interesting, right? Because he is, when he doesn't have a movie, he's still in the conversation. That's like, that's what he really has figured out. And so his celebrity is, I mean, he, he's sort of, he's still Deadpool in a weird way, right? Like even when Deadpool's not around, he's kind of that sort of, he's always been that kind of character anyway. So it's not, he's not doing anything new. That's just his persona. But you know, coming back to the, the marketing on Netflix, it's a great point because you know, Netflix, the thing that Netflix is doing with marketing and that, you know, that I think Hulu does this a little bit too this is the whole point about personalization, right? Which is you have on-platform and off-platform marketing. Um, there's a there's a guy at a, the the chief product officer at, at Curiosity Stream, guy named Devin Emery. I've, I've talked to a bunch, and on, t- on Twitter once he he made a point that he, that he said, you know, Netflix just has ubiquitous access, meaning that every possible product where they every every possible channel where their product can be marketed, they are marketing, and so they are finding. You know, the point is that when you have a Ryan Reynolds film. On Netflix, which are going to have in this December, right? It's the I can't remember what it's called, like the Red Dot or something like that. But the with um with with Gal Gadot and The Rock and like that, that they are they are going to they're going to market those celebrities in every channel where those where it is both cost effective and high impact to get people excited about watching Gal Gadot or The Rock or Ryan Reynolds. But then the other thing is when all three of us log into Netflix, odds are like we're probably going to see different uh, titles. We're going to probably get different user experiences. And so the, the point you're making, Tim, is a really profound one, which is you know, it, like, the best marketing relies on celebrity, but it relies on like an extraction of a celebrity, which is you know, Netflix doesn't care really about celebrity. It really cares about something much more concentrated, which is, well, what does celebrity mean to you? What do you need to to watch this movie and if it means like we're, we put the rock smiling over ryan reynolds smiling then that's that's what they do in front of each in, in front of the individual and it's a very you know it's 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 a fragmentation of something that we understand and, and the fragmentation of a business model and then on top of that add like algorithmic targeting in the millions where they, they and then changing languages in different regions i mean it's if you read their their tech blogs it's it's, it's a it's mind-blowing to think about the math even try to do the math of what they're doing uh, at scale to try and get people to, to sign in and watch. 
I feel like a penny just dropped as you said that because we've been saying since the minute we started this podcast that we recognize we're at the end of the blockbuster era and we're moving into a new era of content and marketing. Um, and from what you just said there, it makes total sense now, right? If we're so micro-targeted and kept within our echo chamber, how will any of us have a pop culture experience, a global pop culture experience, if we're not taking one asset and pushing out to the whole globe so we all go watch Star Wars or go listen to Jaws, you know, the Jaws music? We don't have those experiences because we're separated out so the, the economy of a blockbuster just doesn't match anymore. And then these actors and actresses deals where it once required, you know, like the blockbuster deals, if you have the back end of the theatrical release, almost don't make sense anymore either, do they? Because really it's that influence is just getting subscribers on a platform that's pushing out content that doesn't really need their talent to keep the content going. It's a, it's a kind of a web that we're all in the middle of. And I guess, quite frankly, some of our mission at Hollywood Breaks is to start pulling that stuff apart so it starts making sense to each of us as we navigate what should our what should our own film deals look like as we're going into these things should i i mean i'll like jason blooms and i'll take the 400 million and (laughs) do it but it's a little bit i don't really get what 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 they're paying me for (laughs) yeah yeah i think i think andrews it, it is interesting and sort of the evolution and you can see it even with the free guy ryan reynolds is everywhere like he is using every channel he has to promote this movie. And if it was on Netflix, I don't think it would you wouldn't be seeing it like this. It's just sort of the mindset of, well, if this is definitely a theatrical movie, then we have to go all out. And it it it's sort of I find it puzzling simply because as the entertainment strategy guy pointed out in his newsletter last week about Boss Baby, what the, sort of the traditional marketing that they universal pursued, and that was on their on Peacock, and it was effective across the Boss Baby brand, all the way down to sort of the show on Netflix. And there is learnings that showcase that even sticking to a traditional marketing plan and not trying to be so micro-targeted all the time can be successful. And I'm wondering if maybe Netflix and or you know, maybe even a Hulu will start to look at that and be like, well, you know, maybe we don't need to be so, you know, precious and just, you know, be so specific about our marketing and try to make movies that we feel have that sort of cultural moment potential and really sort of put some some robust dollars behind it to try to effectuate some real, real uh, return on an investment. Yeah, I think Apple's the only one who's really doing that. That's the, that's the most fascinating thing is that Apple's basically saying like, you know, we, we have built-in theaters, right? We have Apple phones, Apple iPads, we have Apple TVs that, you know, we are, that the Apple device is effectively the new theater. And so we can take the Hollywood blockbuster model and we can, you know, Ted Lasso is a global feel-good event for everybody. And, and but, but at the same time, you know, there's not, like my wife and I have been watching Schmigadoon I love it because it's batshit. Sorry, too, okay. <laughs> People do. Yeah, if you want to believe it, but it is, it, it, the show is batshit crazy. Like it, it is just, it is just, it is so unapologetically in a different world. And it, it, it basically the, the running joke in it, which I think is really clever, is that if you meet people from the theater world or the Broadway world, like it is that kind of like happy, singy, bright energy, and and things just kind of happen spontaneously, and and. And so the whole premise is that two so like 
two people kind of walk into this world and it's a musical. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's a global event. I think they tried to, but I do think that they've tried to market it as like, here's Broadway for when you're stuck at home and not able to go to Broadway for two years. And, and so there's, there's little things like that that they can do as a destination. Um, but I, you know, at the same time, which again, what's interesting is I think they've had a really difficult time convincing people both to sign up for the service and pay for it. And, and so it, that means that the infrastructure that we're all familiar with is still there and Apple actually makes it unusually easy and arguably so does Google, right? Um, and so does Roku, 50 million. And so does Amazon, right? I mean, all, all these guys have the infrastructure to make it easy, but there's something, you know, I think the lingering question in this conversation is like there's something that still doesn't feel like it makes sense still, right? That, that there's some disconnect between, okay, here's all this awareness. What does it mean? Yeah. And I guess the, the, the disconnect for us, the, the question is, is, is it actually disconnected and we're all trying to figure it out or are there puppeteers that are basically rolling something out and, and creating some kind of new economy? Um, and I, I business is business, I guess, to 10 degree, but it's not like that wasn't happening before and won't happen in the future. The question we have is, as content makers, marketers, um, storytellers, is how can we take advantage of this? What is this economy? How do we? How are we included? And what? Yeah. what how should we be thinking differently about it? Yeah, I, that's the thing that I mean. It's my existential question, right? But I, I do think that it's a, uh, it's a that I find the the Karina Cop thing I wrote about not upsetting, but it it was it just sort of said like everything old is new again, right? Like an attractive blonde who likes to take selfies, found another platform for selling those selfies. And, and, and it's not new. I mean, you know, that's it, the only difference is rather than like Hugh Hefner controlling that, that, that distribution channel, like she controls the distribution channel and she just makes a deal with them, but she's not doing much different than an attractive blonde before her it, you know, 50 years ago, 60, like Jane Mansfield or something. Right? Like, like there's a, there's something about it that it almost feels like things that are familiar. YouTube to me seems like things that are familiar work at a smaller scale. Right. So in other words, that it's that, you know, like, like Blippy, which I've kind of gotten to know through, through my son, like that's a weird, we've only watched it once. I won't watch it again because I have <laughs> so many issues with it, but this guy figured out a way to build a brand on YouTube. And he's not, he's not different from any other clown. There's like, just there's something that he's figured out about YouTube as a medium that makes him as a clown, more discoverable, more popular. And that's, you know, but there's so many different versions of Blippi. He just happens to be one of the most successful ones. There's so many different versions of Karina cop, right? Attractive gamers, but she's, for whatever reason, figured out her individual model. Like there's something that, that there's a lot of different versions of the same thing, but how do they break through? What are the things that, that, that make the, that, that break through that, that, that reflect their breakthrough. And some of it may just be timing. Some of it may be luck. Some of it may just be that they figured this stuff out. I mean, Robert Kinsel, the, the, the chief business officer of YouTube wrote a book about, about this called stream punks, which actually, you know, it, I don't think it got enough credit when it was out because it was actually a very good, one-on-one breakdown of what's what the youtube economy looks like right what it means to be a creator in this economy what it means to break through and you know even there's like there's a town in missouri that where somebody who's a um uh a quilt 
knitter, like has like a quilt knitting little industry, turned the town from nothing into like a tourist destination. Um, sort of similar to like chipping Joanna Gaines. Um, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, turning Waco into a, into a tourist destination. Like there's something about connecting with the audiences in that authentic one-to-one way, but it's also inauthentic. I, I, and there's, there's something about it that I don't fully understand. And I think to be honest, I think it's such an iterative process. Yeah. I think that's a question we're asking too. And, and, you know, some of this, I feel like there is just luck or timing but those are short-lived moments. And there are some people making careers out of it. And I think that's more strategic and, and intentional. And probably what we're really asking the questions about and seeking some input into is, how do we leverage this moment to make a career out of it and not just you know get a bunch of hits today on one video, just you know be streaming or viral for, for one moment? Yeah. Hey, I we got to wrap this thing because if we don't, we're going to be into 2022's predictions. Five prediction. hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's five hours. I told you. If you are not subscribed to the Parkour newsletter, you have to do it right now. The, the Parkour is spelled P-A-R-Q-O-R, parkour.com. Right there at the top, put your email address in and start getting Andrew's insights. He is giving you the dots and connecting the dots for you in the marketing space. And if you're in the marketing space and you haven't hired Andrew for his insights, reach out to him right now, Andrew at parkour.com and say, dude, I have a pile of cash. I need to give it to you because I need your brain on these problems I'm dealing with. <laughs> you will not be afraid. You will not be ashamed. Anybody you're talking to, Andrew, as you can hear, has many deep thoughts. Andrew, I just don't know where you find the time to do all the reading and listening and watching that you do. So hopefully, you know, like you get some sleep in your life because I, I feel like I'm curious and I have some desire to figure this stuff out. And I don't know half the stuff or you have half the reach that you have in there. Uh, so I appreciate you just staying on top of this and giving me the the Cliff Notes version of all that you, <laughs> that you do through your newsletter. It's really great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, thank you all for being part of Hollywood breaks this week. As you can tell, we have deep friends with deep ideas and we would love to hear from you. If you have any more questions, any more thoughts, please feel free to reach out to us. You can also subscribe on any of our channels, tell your friends about us. We'd love to have um, more and more of, of this community growing and being part of this conversation. We feel like there's a lot of great stuff happening in Hollywood and we want to be part of it. Keith, thanks for, when do you go home, man? Are you going to be leaving soon? Right? Well, you get I get one more uh, one more one more episode in Maine, and then then it's back to uh, maybe you're gonna have to come down from to, uh, Philadelphia from Maine next week and meet Andrew and I in, in the in the city. We can uh... <laughs> yeah, I could do that. I could make that work. Maybe. We could do, we could we'll do this live. <laughs> That'd be really great. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. All right, well, Lydia, thank you for all your help and keeping us on track. We appreciate you and the Go Social team keeping us keeping the content flowing. Until next week, we appreciate you all. This is episode 51 of the Hollywood Breaks podcast, and we'll see you next week. Bye.